While you're getting settled there, can I invite you to pull out your Bible? This morning we'll be in the Word again today in the Gospel of Luke. If you don't have a Bible or if you forgot your Bible, just raise your hand and ushers are coming down the aisle so that you can have your own Bible in your own hands. And the other thing I'll have you grab as you're getting settled is this beautiful, beautiful Good Friday Easter postcard that was on the seat. Can I tell you about that just for a moment? This is a gift for you to take with you throughout the next few weeks so that if, if the Lord were to give you an opportunity to invite someone to one of our services over the course of that weekend, you'd have all the information right there. Um, one side tells about Good Friday. We have two Good Friday services this year, 6.30 and 8.30, and we've been praying and preparing something really special. I'm, I couldn't be more excited this year for Good Friday. And one of the things I'll remind you is that it's totally appropriate and actually it might be really wise to invite a friend to Good Friday service. You're inviting someone into the heart of the, of the centrality of the cross in our Christian faith. And it's a beautiful service. It's a little bit of a different service. It's more contemplative and, and quiet and reflective, but it's, it's just as meaningful. So you might want to invite someone to that service and then have them come back for Easter Sunday. We have four services on Easter this year, 7.30 a.m., 9.30 a.m., 11.30 a.m., and then we have our 5 p.m. service. And we'll talk about this more later, but we try to encourage all of you early morning risers to come to that 7.30 service because we want to make room in here for visitors and guests. So consider 7.30, all right? Write that on your Bible. Consider 7.30. I'm going to pray about that. Uh, we'd love to have you come to that service and um, take this card as you go. We'll be sending out through social media a digital version of this if you'd like to share that with people. And then the last thing I'll remind you of is last Sunday I told you about this 32 hours of prayer that we're going to do. If you were not here last Sunday, you'll want to go in and listen to that message. But we're going to pray for 32 hours straight as a church in our sanctuary. We're, we're inviting people to sign up to cover an hour. My vision is that there be five, at least five to ten River Westers in this sanctuary straight for 32 hours, starting right after our second Good Friday service, all the way until 6 a.m. on Easter morning. Why do we call it 32 hours of prayer? Because that's 32 hours, okay? And it's going to be amazing. And we're going to pray for our church. We're going to pray for God's grace to fall on our community. And we need you to sign up. There's information on the back of your bulletin today about how to sign up to cover one of those hours. Let's, let's get on that together as a church. It's going to be a beautiful thing. But right now we're going to get into the word. Are you excited? Yes. Pull out your Bible. Open to Luke 6. I'm excited this morning because I've got a message for you today about our human tendency to notice the tiniest little flaws in other people <laughs> while we tend to be completely blind to the glaring weaknesses in our own life. Do you know what I'm talking about? Why is it that I seem to have 20-20 vision when it comes to other people's sin, but I tend to be very farsighted. Things get a little fuzzy about my own problems and my own sin. Isn't that interesting? 
I thought about that this week. I thought of many examples in my own life, but the most glaring examples that I could think of happen to me when I'm behind the wheel of my car. <laughs> right? You feel me? I mean, when I'm driving, I am so aware of other people's weaknesses. It's amazing, right? <laughs> Oh, man. I remember when I first married Kathy, she couldn't believe the way I would drive. I, I worked with this unspoken mantra that said something like, life is a race, including this moment, okay? Life is a race, and there's winners and losers. That's it, all right? That's how I drove. And, uh, and, and one of the first times we were driving down the freeway, I was going down the passing lane, the far left lane, all right? That lane is for passing, did you know this? Thank you. You feel me? Okay. I'm in that lane and there's someone going 64 miles an hour. And I thought I was going to lose my mind. All right. This is a long time ago before I was sanctified in Jesus. And I'm pulling up behind this person and I'm thinking, well, they probably are just not aware of the laws in the state of Oregon. You know, maybe they're from Washington or something. So I start flashing my lights Okay, and I got up real close to the bumper. This is a long time ago, okay? <laughs> and I could see out of the corner of my eye, Kathy looking at me like, who have I married? Just in shock. So, so the person gets over and then we start driving and she's talking to me about my whole philosophy of driving. And suddenly I become aware of the fact that there's someone behind me flashing their lights. <laughs> and you know what I did? I slowed down. I tapped on the brakes, all right? They had to go around me. And I was like, California driver, what are you doing, you know? Why is it? Why is it that our vision is 20-20 when it comes to other people's flaws, but suddenly things get a little fuzzy when it comes to my own sin? There's a word we use for this. The word is judgmentalism. And apparently, it's kind of a big deal to Jesus. In fact, when you study the Sermon on the Plain, which we're doing right now in our church, it dawns on you, Jesus is actually kind of concerned about judgmentalism. He's worried about this. You know, the Sermon on the Plain is, it's the very first words of wisdom that Jesus shared with his new community. So think about this for a minute. He's gathered together a people on this plane that represent his disciples, leaders, people who are on the fringes, people who are broken. It's the church. It's the very first gathering of the church, and Jesus preaches the very first words of wisdom. Isn't it interesting that of all of the things that Jesus felt like he should address, he took two full paragraphs to talk about judgmentalism. It was as if to say, there is one thing that could be so toxic for a church family. It could really harm the beauty of our relationships. It's this, it's this topic. I titled the sermon, The Hidden Threat of Judgmentalism. We're going to learn about it this morning. I'm going to read these verses to you. Will you look at it with me? Luke 6 is where we'll be today, verses 37 to 42. Here's what Jesus said next. He said, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. 
Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Okay. Now look, this passage has been like a mirror that God's been holding up to my life all week. He's just like, take a look, dude. He's just holding up. And it's not one of those flattery mirrors, you know, that make you look more skinny, like with the curvature and stuff. No, 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 no. This is like the high def mirror with the big fluorescent lights where you see all of your pores and pox. And and Jesus is like, take a look. This passage is for me. It's like a big blinking red warning sign that says, be really careful about how you judge. You tend to be extremely harsh towards others and unbelievably generous <laughs> towards yourself. Amazing. Jesus says, be careful. He's concerned. He's worried. Why would he be worried? Because he loves the church. And Jesus knows something. Whatever's happening in these verses, Jesus knows this is like kryptonite to beautiful gospel community. That's why I want to warn my people about it. Now, I got a lot of questions about this passage. I've been asking questions all week. This is how I prepare as I think, like what? I'd stop and go, wait a minute. So I had all these questions that I wrote down because it dawned on me as I was reading this, this passage could be misinterpreted. And if you're paying attention, which I know you are, you're thinking, we need to be really precise with what we do at this passage. This is one of the most misinterpreted and misquoted verses in the entire New Testament. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. So I have all these questions. I'm going to share my questions with you. Um, I'm going to put them up. There's dozens that I've asked, but I think there's four that are critical that we would want to ask and answer today if we're going to interpret this whole teaching well, okay? The first question is, what specifically is Jesus concerned about? Like, what are we talking about here? Let's get really specific. He says, says, don't judge or you will be judged. Don't condemn or you will be judged. Condemned before you try to take a speck out of your brother's eye, make sure you get the log out of your own eye. What is the actual concern? We need to be precise. The second question is what is the connection between what I dole out and what I receive? 
Now you're already thinking about this. You're thinking this, we need to be, the heart of the gospel's on the line here. I mean, we gotta be careful because Jesus seems to be saying, if you judge, you will be judged. So, or if you give, you know, much will be given to you. What is the actual connection that Jesus is making there? The third question is, why do both of the parables that Jesus used, why do they both have to do with impaired vision? Interesting. A blind man leading a blind man, okay? Or a guy who has a log sticking out of his eye trying to help someone else remove the speck from theirs? What's up with the impaired vision thing? And then finally, why does Jesus repeatedly call the person with the speck in his eye, my brother, my sister? Fascinating. We'll walk through these today. And then at the end, I'm going to give you a couple of really practical takeaways. But first, we have to answer that question, number one. What is the problem? What's going on here? You might be thinking, Pastor, you know, you used a word in your opening that I don't see in verse 37. You used the word judgmentalism. But I don't see the word judgmentalism in verse 37 or anywhere. I see the word judge. Jesus said, judge not, and you will not be judged. By the way, that word judge, it just means to distinguish between two things, to separate between good or evil, sinful or, or, or evil or, or right or wrong. Judging is just an, is the act of separating between two things. That's what the word judge means, but you used a different word. I see the word condemn in there That word condemn means to pass down a sentence. It means to sit as if you were a judge and be the one who gives a sentence. That's what the word condemn means. But I don't see the word judgmental. You created an ism out of this. (laughs) That's what you did. And you know what? You're right. I created an ism. Why would he do that? I'll tell you in just a minute. There's another question you're asking. You're asking, now, wait a minute. If Jesus says, judge not, is he actually saying that I'm supposed to turn off sort of my moral compass and stop deciding that certain things are are sinful or wrong? Is that what this teaching is saying? Because that's how this verse is used often by people outside of the community of faith, okay? The most misused, misinterpreted verse is judge not, lest ye be judged. And people use it for the church all the time. Don't judge me. You follow Jesus. You can't do that. (laughs) So it gets used towards people in the faith community all the time. But is that what Jesus is saying? Is he saying it is absolutely never okay to decide that something that someone's doing is wrong or sinful? We're like, well, he, he cheated on his wife, but who am I to judge, you know, because we're all sinners. Is that what Jesus is after here? I don't think so. If you think about it, there's actually to, to judge, to separate, but distinguish between good and evil. You can't even decide that something is good or beautiful without using judgment, right? I mean, we use it all the time. We say, this seems 
right and good and true and beautiful, and I want to celebrate it. And in order to do that, you have to use your faculties of judgment. And not only that, you can never forgive someone, which Jesus specifically says to do. You cannot ever forgive someone if you've not already concluded that what they did to you was sinful and wrong. Interesting, huh? So you have to use judging. But what Jesus is after is a slightly deeper concept. And the key, look back at verse 37, the key to it is to take all of this cluster of words and hold them together. There's four words in there that Jesus uses. He says, don't judge, don't condemn. And then he turns positive and he says, forgive and give. So you have two negatives, don't judge, don't condemn, and you have two positives, forgive and give, and Jesus says, what I want you to do is take that whole cluster of words, hold them together, look at the contrast, and then I want you to realize Jesus is creating this dichotomy. It's like over here on this corner, we've got judging and condemning, and over here in this corner, we've got giving and forgiving, and the question is, where do you play most? Where do you spend your time most? Where do I gravitate towards? If I were to think about my inner disposition, is my inner disposition more towards giving and forgiving? Or is it a little bit more towards the judging and condemning? Interesting, huh? Francis Schaeffer, the great Christian philosopher, apologist, he used an illustration when he was talking about these verses. He said, imagine when a baby's born, that they're born with an invisible tape recorder around their neck, and it's a magic tape recorder, okay? And this tape recorder only turns on when that baby, when that human being is in the act of judging someone else, and it records it. And he said, it's not aesthetic stuff. It's not, oh, wow, that's beautiful. I really like that piece of art. It's the judging that's like, man, she is such a gossip. Click, record, off. Wow, he's really not looking very good today. Click, record, turn off. <laughs> okay, throughout your whole life. And then imagine you get to the end of your life and you stand before God and you say, God, it's not fair. Why are you judging me? I didn't know about your rules. I didn't know about the sermon on the plane. How are you possibly judging me? I didn't know. And God says, okay, I won't judge you on any of that. I'm only going to judge you on the standards that you used all throughout your life. And he grabs that little magic tape recorder and he presses play and he lets you listen to all those moments. And it's not a couple minutes, right? It's not a couple days. It might be a couple of months or a year listening to all those things. And then God says, I'll just judge you on that standard that you use towards other people. It's a brilliant, brilliant illustration. The point of the illustration is that I know that if I had a tape recorder around my neck, it would be out of tape already, right? And Jesus says, where do you gravitate? You know, the Apostle Paul in Romans 2, he said, don't you know God is the only judge? And what's amazing is that God has shown you 
forbearance and grace and forgiveness. Why? To lead you to repentance. He says, he's saying this to people who are judging. He's saying, you who judge, you don't even live out the standards that you're using to judge others, and God has been so gracious to you. So judgmentalism is a disposition of the heart. It's my disposition. I'm up here repenting before you saying, this is me. I'm like this. I'm so acute about other people's flaws and so blunt and dumb about my own. Jesus says, that's judgmentalism, and I care about it. That's question one. Here's question two. Okay, what is the connection, though? What's the connection between what I dole out and what I receive? You know, this passage would be so much simpler if Jesus had simply said, be really cautious about judging people. Okay, we're moving on to the next topic. But that's not what Jesus does here. He makes these if-then statements. So he says, judge not, and you will not be judged. What? Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Jesus seems to be making a connection between what we do and what we receive. Now, at one level, we get this. We recognize that if, if I treat people a certain way in my life, they'll treat me in like kind. And that's a, most people get that. But Jesus seems to be doing something much deeper here. This is like a divine thing. So he uses this illustration, this metaphor from the marketplace. Do you see it there in verse 38? Look at your Bible. He, he draws on this metaphor of you're in the market and you've purchased grain. And look what he says. He's talking about how God has treated you and I. And he says, God is like that vendor who, when you buy grain, he, he shakes it, he presses it down. It's this image of the vendor wanting to give you as much grain as he possibly can. He shakes it. He moves it around. He tries to get all the air pockets out of there. It's like the opposite of our modern day bag of potato chips. Okay. (laughs) It's right. You know, my wife, we went to whole paycheck, whole foods, and we were in there and she picked up a bag of dried pear chips. Have you seen these? They're delicious. They taste like little Jolly Ranchers, all right? And the bag looked like a helium balloon. It was $8, and it was so inflated with air, I was afraid if I let go of it, it would float up out of the store. And I opened the bag, and there were seven dried pears in there, okay, for $7. It was unbelievable. But this image is just the opposite. This image is God saying, I'm going to show you how abundant I am to you. He presses down his grace. He shakes it around. He pours it into your lap. It's, there's so much blessing and goodness that it's, it, it spills out of your life. Remember the context of this? Just pop up to verse 36 in your Bible. What is the context of this past, this teaching? God says, be merciful Why? Because your heavenly father is merciful. You say, who is merciful first? 
God was merciful first. And then what happens is if I really get that, mercy starts to flow out of my life, right? So good. Jesus is making a connection here. He's making a connection between how God has treated you and how you treat others. But the, que- the, the connection, we need to be super careful here because it seems like Jesus says, if I judge people, God will then judge me. Or if I am a condemning person, God will condemn me. And it sounds like Jesus is doing something chronological, but it's not chronological. It's, it's logical. It's gospel logic. This is really critical. I've actually had people come up and say, and say I'm really struggling because it seems like Jesus is actually saying that if I spend my life judging people, I will be judged more harshly. I'll actually be condemned. And that's a, that is a, a, a really scary way to read the Bible. Imagine the inverse. The inverse logic would be this. If I overlook the sins of other people, God will overlook my sins. Now think about that for a minute. Does that make sense? That does not make sense. If I overlook other people's sins, that's all I need for God to overlook my sins. Well, then you go, where's the cross in that? Why would I need the gospel? Why would I need Jesus to die for my sins if all I need in order for God to overlook my sins is that I overlook another person's sins? So that cannot be the connection. The connection is this. When God accepts a person by his grace, it transforms you. It has to. As you start to discover, God saved me. He died for my sins. He poured out his mercy on me and he was not skimpy. He was lavish. It will take your breath away. If it doesn't, you have totally not understood grace. Amen. 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 If it does, if grace doesn't take your breath away, you didn't actually hear about grace. You heard something else. The message of grace will leave you trembling at the knees before God, going, oh, God, you've been so good to me. How could I possibly withhold mercy towards someone else in light of how you've treated me? So good, so good. So Jesus says, that's the connection. That's the logic. The logic is, you demonstrate in your life whether or not you've understood grace. If I'm really judgmental and I'm always condemning and I'm always looking at other people and I'm so aware of their sins and I'm blind to my own stuff, Jesus is simply saying, I don't think you've understood how much grace I've poured out into your life. Take another look. Take another look. Question number three. Question three. Why do both of the parables have to do with impaired vision? Is this just a coincidence? Did Jesus just happen to take two parables? No, we know that Jesus is way too wise for that, right? 
And for heaven's sakes, we've been studying Luke, and Luke is a masterpiece. Every single thing that he wrote was meticulous. This was the part of my sermon prepping where I, God took my breath away the most. Why impaired vision? Why the first one, a blind man leading a blind man? And they both end up falling in a pit. The first thing I want to say to you is Jesus is definitely going after the Pharisees here. He's saying the Pharisees are blind leaders. If you follow them, you're still spiritually blind, but you know what? They're blind too, and they're just going to lead you into a ditch. So choose wisely who you follow because you'll become like them, right? So he's definitely saying that. But then he moves to this next figure of speech in verse 40 that's almost cartoonish, verse 41. It's this image of a, of a person with a log coming out of their eye. And that word in the Greek, it's the word that we use to describe the, the main beam in a house that held up the, found, it held up the floor it was, like the, it was like the load-bearing support beam, all right? And Jesus says, you literally have a load-bearing beam in your eye, and yet you're looking for tweezers to help your neighbor get the speck. It's like set down the tweezers and get on the forklift, brother, okay? You need a forklift to get this log out of your own eye. And the point of the whole metaphor is that it's so comical, we can laugh, but also in laughing, look within and go, oh man, that's me. I need to hear this. I literally have a log in my own eye and I'm focused on my neighbor, my, my brother. So what's the, what's the point of the metaphor? The lesson of the speck and the plank is a classic case of what psychologists call projection projection. When a person senses there's something seriously wrong with her own eye, she may try to avoid dealing with it by focusing on a tiny problem in her neighbor's eye, right? If I'm struggling with arrogance, I'll be really sensitive to other people who I perceive are arrogant. If I'm struggling with anger, I'll be really sensitive to that person over there who I think is angry. If I'm really struggling with insecurity, I'll be sensitive, very attentive to that person who appears to me to be insecure. If I don't like the position in my life, if I wish I had more leadership or influence in my life, I'll be really critical of the person who I perceive has been given influence and leadership. It's projection, right? And Jesus says it's common. I remember one time I went to a, a pastor's conference and there was a pastor up there and he was giving a message on integrity. He was speaking to a group of young leaders and he was talking about integrity. And I remember thinking, this is getting really harsh. Like the way that he was communicating was very strong. It almost came across condemning sort of this holier than thou way of communicating. I remember sitting in the room feeling kind of uncomfortable about it. And there's all these young leaders in the room and he's just pounding on them, pounding on them. And about six months later, it came out that he had been hiding an affair. He was a pastor. He'd been hiding an affair in his life for like five years. And I remember thinking, man, and it did a lot of damage, you know, 
It was projection. If I'm hyper-focused out there, it's possible it's because there's something that I don't want to look at within. And the lesson is brilliant, okay? Both of these parables talk about vision because Jesus knows that the act of judging right and wrong, listen carefully, judging right and wrong, especially when it comes to other people, it requires really clear spiritual vision. Amen. Boy, there is so much we don't know. We're quick to pass judgment on someone. Have you ever done it? You, you rush to judgment and then you realize there's this whole piece of information that you didn't know about their life. You, you're quick and you say something or you think something that's really condemning and then you learn a piece of information. We've all heard the stories. I remember hearing a story by a guy who wrote a leadership book. He was in a subway writing through New York, and there was a man near him, and this man's kids were just out of control. I mean, they were tearing around, screaming, crying, like it was, and it was getting super distracting. A lot of the passengers were starting to get agitated. Finally, someone near him leaned over and was like, hey, you know, your kids are out of control, man. And the guy was like, thank you. I wanted to say something too, you know. And he's thinking, what a horrible parent, you know. Get your kids under control. And the guy looked up and he started weeping. He was like, oh, I'm so sorry. We just left the hospital. The kids just lost their mother to cancer. And I was just thinking about everything that waits me next, you know. And he immediately was like, I was so quick to rush to judgment. Jesus says, be careful. Judging, it's, it, sometimes it is important. Sometimes it is a part of the community to, to distinguish between right and wrong, good and evil. But be so careful. It requires deep wisdom really clear spiritual eyesight. And the thing that Jesus says with the parable is he says, if your eyesight is really clear, the place that you'll always begin is in your own heart. You'll always see first your own sin, your own weakness. Jesus says, step one, step one is remove the plank. You got to get that plank out of your own eye. He's like, be really critical of yourself. Be, be vicious in judging your own motives, your own heart. And once you've done that, once you've taken the forklift and removed that plank out of your eye, then with extreme humility, approach your neighbor or your friend to help them with the speck in their own eye. These are words of wisdom, River West. Jesus is sharing it, remember, He's sharing this because he loves community so much. This community is precious to him. That leads us to the final question here. Have you ever thought about it? He repeatedly calls the other man my brother. Just look at it with me. Verses 41 and on. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye when you yourself don't see the log in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you'll be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Over and over and over, it's this language of this person is your brother. 
your sister. Jesus is reminding us we're a family in Christ. We're a family. We're going to spend a lot of time together like eternity. (laughs) We're going to be together for a long time. And the way we treat each other can be so powerful, right? In a family, you have the capacity to have the greatest intimacy, the most rich, beautiful relationships. Some of you have relationships like that with a brother or sister, but you also know that in a family, we have the capacity to inflict the greatest amount of harm to one another. Amen? Isn't that true? Brothers and sisters. I think Jesus is saying, you've got a lot of time with this brother. Take your time. Especially when it comes to noticing what might be sin in their life, which is an important thing to do sometimes. Paul said it in Galatians 6. He said, if you see a brother or sister in sin, if you're, if you're attentive, if your eyesight is clear, if you're humble, yes, go to them. But go to them because you love them and you want to restore them. And Paul says very clearly, he says, if you do that, be really careful that you don't fall into temptation yourself, right? Paul says, take your time. Jesus says, this person's your brother. Move slowly. Be gentle. Be gracious. Hang out in the corner of forgiveness and generosity. And only when absolutely necessary, move over to the corner of, I need to point out sin, right? Is that helpful? Is that good? You're like, no, I'm not learning anything. (laughs) I'm going to give you three things to do. I want you to write these down. You say, please give me, I just need super practical. Tell me what to do. Okay, I'm going to tell you what to do. And I'm going to ask you to start doing this right away as we worship, as we go to communion. These are, sometimes we have to have the obvious restated to us. These are going to sound really obvious, but we need to hear it. Here's the first thing I want you to do. Become very suspicious of yourself. Become very suspicious of yourself. Start there. I have a mantra that I use, and you've heard me say this because I've said it on Sundays, and the mantra is this. If the gospel is true, my biggest problem is my own sin. If the gospel is true, if Jesus died for sin, that means my biggest problem is my sin. It has to be true. The gospel's true. That's my biggest problem. The gospel's true. I probably have a load-bearing beam in my eye right now, okay? Jesus did not die for your neighbor's speck. (laughs) He died for your plank. Amen? Amen? It's so funny. People have come up and they're like, I didn't like that part of the sermon. I really did not like that. I didn't like it when you said that. I was in a counseling meeting with a couple and I I used that illustration. I was like, look, they they were sort of going after each other. They weren't weren't looking at their own stuff. And, and, And I was like, look, if the gospel is true, my biggest problem is my own sin. 
We got to the end of the counseling session and the husband had to leave early. So he left and the wife was still there. And she was like, I was so glad he was here to hear you say that. (laughs) And I'm thinking, I was actually saying that to you. (laughs) Right? Can I tell you something? We're being trained by a culture to always see my problems as being out there. They're always out there, right? In this world of internet shaming, right? Where we pile on people and the problem's always out there. The problem is always systemic. The problem is always my neighbor. The problem would never possibly be in my own heart. And Jesus says, no, if the gospel is true, your biggest problem right now in that relationship that's hard, your biggest problem is your own sin. Start there. Okay? Here's number two. Start paying attention to the tape recorder around your neck. Just listen. When does it turn on? Wait a minute. Why did I think that right there? About that person who's my sister in Christ. I just got, wow. And just start paying attention. How, when does it come on? Why does it come on? What's, is there a pattern? And if there's a pattern, do I need to look inside my own heart to understand why? Okay, and here's the third one. Write this down. Be quick to forgive and slow to judge. I'm borrowing from James's paradigm, right? Be slow to speak, quick to listen. I like that. So I just stole it from James. Be quick to forgive. Rush into forgiveness. Rush into grace. Walk really slowly with humility into passing judgment. Let me tell you something. I guarantee you, I will never get to the end of my life and regret being too gracious. I won't, if I'm on my deathbed, I will not go, oh, I was too forgiving. Man, (gasps) what was I thinking? I will lay on my deathbed going, why was I so judgmental? Why did I do that? Why did I do that? Should we worship a little bit? Let's invite the worship team up and I'll have you bow your heads. Let's pray together. Lord, we need your wisdom so much. We need your word. This passage is for me. It's a mirror that you're holding up. I need to look. I want to change. It's not enough just to feel convicted. I need to realize I've been forgiven. And you weren't skimpy. You pressed that grace down. You shook it up. It's spilling over mercy and compassion and grace. It cost you dearly, Jesus. You suffered and bled. You hurt. You wept. You felt forsaken. And you died to forgive me of my sin. And I want to receive it today and be changed by it so I could become a person of 
mercy and forgiveness. So thank you. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. amen.